Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Welcome to episode 63 of Running Matters. My name is Matt Nor. My co-host today is Scott Hazelton. How are you going, mate? Good, thanks, Matty. How are you? Good. How's Orange? Yeah, it's, uh, it's windy and cold uh, as usual this time of year, but going well, mate, going well. Good. Consistency. We like it. Yeah. Uh, before we get into it, I'd like to thank our partners, Ranella, Sydney Brewery, Goo Energy, Guy Me Allied Health, Basecamp Altitude, T8 Run, Precision Hydration, and Fractal Running Caps. And I'd also like to thank Jimmy Carroll, who's always doing the editing behind the scenes. And uh, as with this show, there's a lot of cropping and things going on, and it's like he's building a Frankenstein for us. So appreciate it, Jimmy. I bet you wish you never signed up for this. So thanks, mate. Hey, uh, Scotty, tell us about Run Your Age. Gee, I'm glad you asked, Matty. Thanks for that. Um, it's a Facebook group uh, where people who want to celebrate their birthday by running can join up and just document the fact that they have run their age in kilometres. So give an example, there's a guy called Nigel in the group at the moment. He's turning 52 next month. So his task is to run 52 kilometres in no more than 52 hours, and it has to cover at least part of his actual birthday. So it's just a bit of a challenge for people to get together and try and fit running into their busy schedules and mark the occasion with a run. It's pretty cool. So really, it's just to get people out and about. It's no no other cause. Not really. It's sort of just everyone's busy. And I think the older you get, the easier you get, because you get an extra hour to just go one more kilometre. So it's sort of keeping us running and a bit of banter. And, uh, you know, friend of the show, Ben Duffers from a couple of weeks ago, he signed up for us. So he's in there now. And there's some, there's some really good runners in there. Uh, and there's also just some plotters that just say this year, uh, I won't give it all away, but my wife's uh, got a pretty significant number coming up and she's decided this year she's going to do her first ever run your age on her birthday and knock the Ks over. So just something to, to aim for when there's not a lot of races on the calendar. Yeah, it is, it is a good time of year to do that. I've, uh, I've got to knock out 46 this November. Sounds like six. That, that, yeah. All right. I reckon you're up that's, for it. That's right. Good training. Good training. <laughs> So um, our special guest today is Jason English. But before we go to Jace, uh, we might go to Abby um, at Precision Hydration. Okay, I'm with Abby Coleman, sports scientist with Precision Hydration. How are you, Abby? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks again for giving up your time. So we're going to have a chat about dehydration and how much you can tolerate before your performance suffers. We've got um, a lot of uh, ultra runners and people competing in ultra events. So tell us um, the 2% rule about losing body weight. Is that a realistic rule or threshold during an event? So good question, Matt. And that 2% dehydration rule largely comes from the ACSM 2007 guidelines that came out, which was a statement where they said they suggested that anything beyond 2% dehydration is going to impair performance. And that came from quite a few older studies that were showing that. 
but what them studies were doing were they were artificially dehydrating people beforehand by putting them in a sauna um, or putting them in a hot bath, you know, inducing real ex- pretty extreme levels of dehydration before doing the exercise test. And that's just not very real world applicable because no athlete willingly or knowingly goes into an exercise bout severely dehydrated. They might do it accidentally, perhaps, but they wouldn't do it purposely. So that's the, where they've come under criticism. Um, what they were seeing that when people lost around 2% body weight, so 2% dehydrated, they were seeing negative effects upon performance, increases in heart rate, increases in body temperature, cardiovascular strain, perceived exertion went up, so they were finding it harder. They were perhaps feeling a bit dizzy or lightheaded, uh, loss of power. So performance started to suffer, essentially. All these things are happening. But when you go out into the field, which these studies came later, and they were looking at what real-world athletes, the level of dehydration they were encountering, it was a lot higher than 2%, and they were winning the races. Mm. So there then became the argument, well, if they were better de- better hydrated, would they have done even better? So they won, but they were perhaps not performed to their best. Or is it actually the case that this 2% dehydration is not such a big problem as it's being made out to be? And you can perform well beyond that. And I would say now the range is around 1% to 6% dehydration is, is considered relatively normal, particularly for like ultra distance runners that higher end seems relatively normal um it's not uncommon to see someone finishing that dehydrated um there's a contemporary theory now that i really like from a um a researcher in loughborough lewis james that is proposing that highly trained athletes are more accustomed to these greater levels of dehydration so perhaps they're just more used to it and so say three percent dehydration for that athlete a highly trained athlete is not so impairing to their performance as someone lesser trained because their body's so used to it. And I think that's a really interesting idea and perhaps where this discussion is going to going to lead us on to. Yeah. Do you think it's because they either train harder or during a race they don't slow down as much to take on as much hydration? I think it's I think probably it- a combination of the two. Um they're probably not got the same opportunity to drink because they're going much faster and they don't want to waste time. They don't want to stop. So I'm sure that is a factor. I think probably some aspect of it as well is that they're very highly trained. They're very heat acclimatized. So their sweat rate is really, really good, really optimal. As you become more heat acclimatized, you begin to sweat earlier and you sweat heavier because sweating is your cooling mechanism. So your cooling mechanism gets better and more efficient. Um, so I'm, I think there's probably an aspect of the two there. You, you probably sweat a bit more than someone lesser trained, although sweat rate does vary from person to person. Um, some people are just naturally big volume sweaters and some people not. But I think there is probably an element of someone being a very, very efficient sweater. And then that case of they're not taking the opportunity to hydrate um, because they don't want to stop and slow down. So I'd, I'd say it's a two, really. Yeah, cool. Hey, so in the 90s, we had the introduction of sports drinks and electrolytes, and they uh, there was a lot of marketing went into that. And so then 
you know, we, we started to become aware of hypernatremia where people were taking on too much fluids during um, during events or training. Um, so, you know, did that, were, were they so good at marketing that people have actually drunk more than they should? Absolutely. And that was a real problem in, in the 90s and early 2000s, as you said, Matt, this marketing kind of um, idea out there was drink, drink, drink. And that's what lots of sports companies were, were telling athletes to do, drink, drink, drink. And they were not listening to their body signals. They were drinking beyond their first stimulus, thinking that dehydration was this awful thing that they needed to avoid. But that was a, a real problem for a lot of athletes. And it was typically the, the slower athletes. Marathons were classic events for it to happen in because you get a lot of people running marathons that perhaps aren't usually runners. They're doing their one marathon. They train really hard for it. They're perhaps going to take, you know, five, six hours. They're out there for a, a long time. And there was aid stations almost every kilometre of the course back then. And every aid station, they were picking up a drink and drinking a cup of water, basically drinking way beyond what they were actually losing. And that excessive fluid consumption just diluted their sodium levels in their blood excessively. And that, as you say, is um, a condition called hyponatremia and there can be different levels of severity with that you can get it kind of acutely and you might experience you know feeling a bit woozy a bit nauseous you might experience some swelling of your extremities and things um, but more severely if if someone really hammers in the fluid then it can cause fatalities and that the body tries to counteract that huge amount of water in the blood by um, pulling it into its body cells, pulling it out of the blood. When that happens in the brain, you risk causing a stroke, um, the brain swells, and, and that's what can cause a death and did lead to some deaths in, in the 90s and 2000s. And that's where it kind of all got recognised that this was the wrong message to be promoting. And that 2007 statement from the ACSM came out and they adjusted their stance a bit more um, to saying, you know, a little bit of dehydration is actually okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So for the more sensible people that are moderating their, um, their, their drinks, how does dehydration impact physical performance? Yeah, I'd say the kind of the things that I probably mentioned um, in the first question really is it's that increase in heart rate, that increase in body temperature because when you become dehydrated that's your blood plasma volume contracting so you've, you've got less blood to go around the body because sweat is drawn from the blood um, and so that volume decreases but if you're still exercising at the same intensity you've still got the same demand for that blood between the muscles and the skin if it's hot but as the blood volume decreases and that demand is still there, the heart has to kind of step in to that demand and increase it. It's pumping, you know, it's heart rate um, to still, still to meet, meet that demand. Um, and that's where you get that, what's called a cardiovascular drift. Um, and that's potentially why it can in, impede thermoregulation because if you get so dehydrated that there's, you know, the heart rate is meets reach its max it can't increase any further to reach that demand but 
the muscles and the skin still want blood, the muscles will ultimately win out. Um, so that's why potentially core body temperature starts to rise and and it all starts to feel harder. Your performance perhaps decreases. And yeah, it's, it's very multifactorial, basically. Yeah. Okay, excellent. That was a good description. And so last question to finish up, what's the best way to prehydrate before a race? So we would say undertake some kind of sodium loading. Everyone's really familiar with carbohydrate loading. You know, that's standard across the board, endurance athletes will do that. But the idea of preloading with some sodium beforehand is, is lesser known. And instead, if people do think about their hydration before an event, they might think, oh, racing on Saturday needs to be really well hydrated. I'm going to drink loads of water. You know, they'll drink extra water the day before, the morning of nervous sipping on the water bottle before the start is really common but if you excessively consume plain water again you get that diluting effect you've of your sodium and you flush the body you end up in the, the queue for the the porter loose before the race and you, you wear it all out anyway so by instead having a drink which has got a relatively high sodium content in so for us we recommend our ph 1500 you get the, the opposing effect in that sodium helps the body to retain water so water follows soul um, and so you then you know, hang on to your water you've got this high levels of sodium and fluid in the body this greater buffer to eat into when you begin sweating because when you go sweat they're the two things that you're drawing from and, and you're losing um, so some high sodium containing drink we would say the night before if it's something really strenuous really long really hot really sweaty but certainly the one one the morning of as well around 90 minutes beforehand an hour be yep. sipping on something okay excellent some great advice there and i know that uh andy mentioned that in the when we interviewed him and that was my takeaway message so since then i've been definitely um loading up on um yeah the electrolytes the morning of the race fantastic that's great to hear has Excellent. it been making a difference have you yeah. noticed a change yeah, yeah i've made, n noticed a huge change and so i haven't had any cramping since i've started to use the um the ph electrolytes so i'm i'm really happy with that fantastic and we didn't tell him to say that everyone <laughs> no, that's right that's right excellent all right abby thanks so much for your time and we'll catch up with you next time Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for that. That was a great chat with Abby. And we might actually go to a, a listener question for you, Jace. And this is from Strava Matt. So his question is, so bike packing or stage races, can you discuss the pros and cons and your preference? Uh, maybe you can put both into context for the listeners first. All right. So the difference between stage racing and bike packing is a uh, I'd say they're two completely different sports. So stage races are much smaller events. You might have to be organized for a two, three-hour stage, maybe up to five or six-hour stage. And you normally only carry fairly minimalistic tools and things. You're trying to be as lightweight as possible. And you'll often have drink bottles supplied along the course. might be neutral feed zones. And you get as much recovery after the event as possible. So it's usually high intensity and it's – sort of open for all, usually mass participation. Lots of people get into stage racing, very popular. 
Um, the alternative is bikepacking, which is seeing a grow in popularity, popularity as well. So with bikepacking, you have to carry everything and go from a point A to point B. So you might do a 500K bikepacking event, maybe a 1,000 kilometre, and there's some in the US that are 4,000 and 5,000 kilometres long, like quite extensive. So you need to work on what sort of sleeping gear you're going to carry, whereabouts you're going to sleep, and how minimalistic you're going to pack. So you might consider the weather conditions and decide that it's not going to rain or it's not going to snow, so then deciding how lightweight sleeping gear you can get a, get around. You need to sort of plan out supply depths um, and drops between towns. So I did the cloud ride last year and there was one section where there's about 220 kilometres where there's nowhere to fill up water. Unless you want to jump in a dam and, you know, fill up next to the cows, which was put down as an option, you are just, you know, planning for 220Ks without a, a further resupply. So a lot more planning out on the fly. You can sleep for two hours, three hours a night, or you can, you know, jump in a pub. So I spent most of the time just sleeping on the grass somewhere, curled up in a little pivy bag while other people were, you know, choosing to jump in the pub and have a good night's sleep. Mm. Nice one. So what, what, what's your preference between the two? Oh, it's good to do a bit of variety, and that's, um, that's what I like about mountain biking. There's so many options. You can do the bikepacking thing or the stage race, cross-country. You can do longer base endurance. I'm, um, I'm leaning towards the, the longer bikepacking, though. I guess as I get a bit older, it's, it's lower intensity, and it's probably a little bit more silly, which is what I'm kind of known for doing these longer, slower events. And, um, yeah, it's, it's complete independence. It's, um, and it's becoming popular from a spectator point of view because while you're riding around, you've got a spot tracker on and you can have people from all around the world tracking your progress. So I kind of like that idea, the people being involved with your racing, you get heaps of messages. And, um, yeah, it's, it's quite, a, quite a cool spectator sport. All right, cool. Hey, uh, Scotty, if, we, if I can go to you, you, you're on board with us today because um, you know Jace back in the day. Hey, tell, us, uh, tell us how you know Jace. Yeah, okay. So we both moved to Port Macquarie. We're both teachers um, and we both moved to Port Macquarie. Well, I got there in 2005. Jace, were you 2005? I was 04. 04, yeah. So he predated me in Port. Um, so he was just down there doing some recce, checking out all the good riding options for me to make sure it was a good place to move. Um, but, yeah, no, we were both teachers and mixed in similar circles on that. And, um, yeah, I think very, very early days, I sort of first bumped into him a bit on the roadie. I'd never done any mountain biking, but I had a road biking background. And then just riding with very various bunches at different times and the odd Saturday afternoon um, road cycling race, I sort of bumped into this hairy-looking dude. Um and we just became mates, um, similar stage of life, similar age, similar interests. Yeah, so I've known him for a fair while. Okay, and, and since that time, you've both moved from Port Macquarie? Yeah, so uh, we were both in Port for many years. I think I was there 13, and Jace would have ended up being there maybe a touch longer. Um, but, yeah, we call those the glory days in Port when there was, <laughs> there was some hitters that came out of Port. It was always a good training bunch, and if you turned up for a, a training ride, you knew it was going to be on. Yeah, and um, so you're now in Orange and Jace is in Newcastle. Mm. Okay, and so you got in contact with me because you were interested in the six-foot track. Talk, take us from there. 
Yeah, so when I moved to Orange, I realised something that most people knew already, that it's flipping cold. And, uh, uh, yeah, when I got here, I'd taken on a new job, so I was a bit busier and sort of going through the winter, I, I spent a whole year doing no activity at all, no fitness, nothing. And um, so I just started running because it's something I could fit in a little bit. Like I felt like you could do 30 minutes running, felt like you'd done two hours riding. So I just did a little bit of running. And then the six-foot track um, from Orange, it's only a two-hour drive to the start. And I thought, oh, anyone can get into the six-foot track. Maybe I'll just train up and, and do that. Um, the history of, of my running before moving to Orange was I had a neighbor that I also worked with, and he'd done some ultras. He'd done the UTA. And I used to say to him that, oh, that's not that impressive. And he used to tell me that anything with pedals was, you know, pretty soft. So one night um, we were kicking back, had a barbie, had a couple of beers, and he dared me to enter the UTA 100. And that was the end of 2014, and we did it in 2015. And so I managed to finish that in a pair of ASICs, um, horribly underprepared with no idea about what I was doing. So I had done some running. Um, but then I came out here, and then I was slowly getting fit again, and I thought, well, I'll go and do the six-foot track because that looks about halfway. And I really loved running in the mountains. So... That, that was it. I tried to get in and I couldn't and I was really bummed. And so I was Googling six foot track uh, and I think I picked up your podcast and you were all at the pub after the race just talking about the race that had been. And it was just really engaging and I was having a listen and I thought that's pretty cool. So I just kept listening and then, um, yeah, things just went from there. And uh, I think, you know, I thought Jace would be a good fit because as we're about to find out, he's got a bit of, uh, a bit of experience with the six foot himself. Yeah, so if if we go back, if we flash back to um, episode eighteen, Jace uh, Jace gets a mention because uh, that was that was just before you were uh, we knew you were doing the six foot, and uh, and we give you a mention saying that uh, it's going to be your first six foot. You're doing some preparation. It was it was only about I don't know. I think we're three weeks out or something. It was so. If you don't mind, I might do a grab, Jace, to that episode 18 where we, we give you a mention and uh, and then maybe we can we can discuss that that mention afterwards because if you can't see it now, I've got egg on my face. So <laughs> hang in there, mate. Just hang in there. I'll, Please I'll, do. I'll, I'll play it now. Jason English. Weapon. So Weapon. Weapon, yep. So um, one of Australia's most accomplished ultra-endurance mountain bike riders. And so we don't discriminate, we, you know. And but he's six foot. Lining up as a good track. And yeah. Will. He's, he's lining up. It. Yeah. Did you? I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it. He did a training run during the week. It was 42Ks at five, ten pace. So he's just tapering then? He's tapering. Nine mm. days out. Um, 42Ks at what? Five, ten pace. Five minute, ten pace. With some hills? Uh, the elevation was 400 and 50. Well, that's not that exciting. That's, yeah, yeah. that's a sandbag. Yeah, yeah. You'll oh. do, you do that. Yeah, I know, but... Was just... Anyway, it's let's see. I'm talking him up. He'll have a good race. You shouldn't ask about the elevation. It was sounding good until yeah, you... Well, he's, a... he's tapering anyway. Yeah, okay. Just yeah, give, yeah. give it a chance. Give it a chance. Okay, guys, after hearing that, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Look, Maddie, I've got to say, I think I'll throw that one straight back to you. Uh, yeah, I think you were saying something like, that's not that exciting... Uh, Wolf will do that easy, and I heard you say, "Yeah, I know." So um, maybe I'll just throw it back to you. Yeah. So, I'm egg on my face. It's still dripping off. We could make an omelet with it. It's, uh, I, I'm I'm known to be overconfident. Uh, so, Jace, like, we'll get into the details, but um, to 
can you tell us how how that how you finished up in the race? I believe your time. Well, tell us your time first. Do you remember? I think it was under four hours because I know my wife had done a marathon on the road, and I think her time was pretty close to four hours. So I thought if she can run four hours marathon on the road, I should be able to do one through the bush in about four hours. Oh, that's fairly logical thinking. Would you kind of agree to that thinking? Yeah. So I think, and 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 jump in, Scotty, if I'm wrong, but I, I think you ran three fifty three, and you finish sixteenth overall out of a thousand. And um, and you finished just behind. Um, who did you finish just behind? I think that'd be 2018 UTA hundred winner Brendan Davies, friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show, Brendan Davies. So uh, you, you finished just behind the winner. Um, you know, Australian champion. So you, you didn't you didn't have a bad debut. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, I, I recall you, you might have called me on your way driving there. Um, I won't go into the specifics of, of of me giving you tips for the race because that'd be too embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> can, can you walk us through? Did you, the race? Were, were you were you pacing yourself? Did you just go? I'll see how it goes. What what what, were you, what was the thought process? I actually didn't know what to expect. Um, I probably should have studied the. Um, profile a little bit more closely and worked out how long. Actually, the first thing I did is work out the feed zones. And I was thinking, there's a feed zone like every two kilometres. This is ridiculous. Why do you even need to carry anything? Um, so that was probably my first thinking. Um, but going back behind there, um, I had a, a mate that had done this race before as well. So I sort of knew what sort of times were potential, but I knew I'd have to go fairly hard to do that. Um, from the start, though, I knew I was in a wave of about 120. Is that what they start in? Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. And so I know Goo sort of really looked at – so not Goo, Camelback looked after me with an entry for this event. And I thought, well, if Camelback are putting an entry down, I need to at least finish inside this 120. So that was my serious goal from the start is to try and crack that 120. So from the start, I thought I was in trouble because we got to the first single track and I pretty much was – 120th i'm pretty sure that was the case i was tipped i was actually really keen to run down these first few stairs but ended up having to walk down behind people that are sort of tiptoeing and they're turning around backwards and basically going down the stairs backwards like they'll they'll scared or something um there's a bit of moisture around but i was looking for places to push through and i actually had a bit of fun looking through and having with the splits i could see at the first checkpoint i must have gone past heaps of people so I'd caught up to 61st. But when I was looking at that split, so I saw that you were sitting in 31st there. So you must have had a bit of a screamer start last year. Is that sort of correct? Jace, it's not about me, mate. Just keep telling your story. <laughs> I'd like to hear more of that, Jace. So yeah, <laughs> I'd like to slow down at the point you actually catch Matt. That'd be great. Well, on the stats, it doesn't actually show that. And I'm trying to make sense of what sort of checkpoint means what. But I could see my first split. Yeah, I was a six, 61st fastest split. And um, once we got to that checkpoint, the sort of the field opened up a little bit. And I recall running with an athlete who, you know, I, as I ride, I sort of just had a bit of chit-chat. So I sort of, you know, thought that's the same as what you do when you're running. You just chat to the guys around you and see how they're going. And turned up chatting to this bloke who was actually very experienced at trail running, has been around the world doing trail running. So I thought, this guy's going to absolutely smoke me. But 
this is fun. I'm just going to just have a crack at staying with him for as long as I can, sort of until I blow up. So I had packed all my nutrition, had a whole belt full of gels, so I knew I didn't have to stop too much. Um, I had the plan of um, – I didn't use the disposo cups. I had like a, one of these goo flasks, um, hydration flasks. You could just fill up with the drink station as you went. So I was fairly quick through the transitions, and I was able to keep with this guy for, for quite some time. But I think um, the track gets a bit technical, maybe, what, 15 k's in before you get to the, the big creek crossing, uh, river crossing. And I actually yeah, smoked this guy going through the technical stuff. I was like, this is awesome. I'm just jumping from rock to rock, and he was out of sight. Went across the river, and then on the other side, you've got this hill that is just ridiculous. And that's probably all I remember from the race is that there was this ridiculous hill and people are trying all these, you know, tactics and strategies of getting up the hill. The other funny thing that was going on in my mind about that time is I wonder how many chicks were in front of me. I wonder if like, I wonder if there's like 10 chicks in front of me or, or how those work. Cause I, I went past a couple of girls and I'm like, these girls are absolutely smashing it. And I'm just hearing little conversations and I was pretty sure I'd gone past like, you know, the third place girl or something. Um, but anyhow, I continued up the hill and I saw these people that are you know, walking. I thought, well, that's obviously what you have to do. It's a running event. You just walk up the hill. So I sort of did that. And then my mate who I dropped in the single track caught up to me and sort of encouraged her to push me that little bit further up the hill. And looking at the splits, I can see how, like, I sort of got faster as it went through. My splits were getting better. So I think I was had the 51st fastest time in the next section. And then the next section was, like, 16th. There was a 21st um, in one section. And then at about the 35K mark, I started cramping really, really bad. And now the reason I'd say I'd started cramping so bad is because I started to feel this urge to go to the toilet. And I'm like, man, I just can't stop and take a dump in the race. Like, that's going to take quite a few minutes. Like, I need to – so I'll just drop the electrolyte and I'll just go with water for a bit. So I was sort of torn between cramping and stopping. When the cramps got so bad, I'm like, no, nah, I've got to go back to electrolyte. I'm having to walk up more hills than what I needed to. Got onto the electrolyte again, and the last 10 kilometres um, were a whole stack easier. Now, I was very mindful, though, of not striding out down the hills in this event. I've worked out that's something that runners can't do, but I'm very naive to the whole running thing, so I haven't worked out the best tactics and strategies. I did the, um, the Rafferty's uh, coastal run, I think, the year before, and I seriously finished that event and couldn't walk for probably two weeks. And it, was all, it wasn't muscular pain. It was all just hip pain from striding out. So I was very deliberate in the six-foot track to just make sure I'm taking the little steps, um, try and run with small steps down the hill, and then the last 10 k's was a chance to kind of stride it off. Now, you mentioned before about Brendan um, Davies finishing in front of me. I actually caught the guy probably in the last two or three kilometres of the event, and I didn't see him again. Like, he must be some crazy downhiller. I don't know how how he runs that fast. Um but yeah, it was a very interesting um, interesting event. Like, I haven't run that far in my life ever. I'd love to go back and do it, but it's, um, yeah, pretty crazy. But I know a lot of people were saying how hot the day was, and I think that's probably what played in my favour because looking at the splits, like, in the last couple of segments, um, the second last segment I had the third fastest time, and then the last section I think I had the fifth fastest time. So all my other splits 
were up in the 20s, in the 50s and higher, it just come down to probably nutrition and pacing and being able to finish that a little bit faster than everybody else. So, Jason, yeah. speaking of nutrition, you've sort of mentioned that a little bit. Just I'll just uh, make sure the nutrition's in order at this end as well. But um, you, you talked about getting your nutrition right and eating well and, and uh, you've tried to back off your electrolytes, the cramps are coming in. I mean, one of the things, and we'll get to it, that you've become so good at with Jen by your side as well is just nailing your nutrition in the really big events in your 24-hour uh, mountain biking. Can you sort of talk us through, you don't usually get it wrong like that on a mountain bike. Um, are there some things for the runners out there that you've found you've sort of tried to take from mountain biking and it doesn't work for you running and what you've learned from that experience and, and sort of your journey in getting nutrition dialed in for running? Well, I've done three trail runs in my life. I've done the Rafferty's a couple of times and, and the six-foot track. So the second Rafferty's I did, um, I made the mistake of just smashing far too much breakfast. I'm hearing runners sometimes run without eating anything. And, like, I can't I can't get out of bed without having breakfast kind of thing. So um, when I did the second Rafferty's, I think my third bowl of cereal is probably one bowl too many. That when I got on the start line, I was um, I was just sort of, you know, just gurgling that was going on. I really had to just keep the heart rate sort of under 130 or 140 for the first half of the race. And then I felt a million dollars for the last part. It was an awesome pacing strategy, but I lost so much time just trying to keep the guts down. So the six-foot track, I did try something a little bit different, and that's not eat as much breakfast. So I might have, in fact, just gone, I don't even know if I had a cereal or just did like a, a liquid brekkie and just tried that one, maybe a banana or something. So tried to go a little bit lighter as well, and that's um, that's one of the challenges. With 24-hour racing, you can afford to eat lots of food because you're, you're there for such a long time. You're at lower intensity, so your body can digest and process that food. But when you're running at that higher intensity, it's just all, all liquid. Carbs are trying to you know smash down as high GI products as, as you can and, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Well. It obvi- good advice. It obviously worked for you. I don't, three bowls of cereal before an, before a running event is unheard of. But um, I, I'm not one to give you advice anymore, Jase. So, <laughs> um, speaking of uh, nutrition advice, uh, I believe um, you did one. One of your crazy events was on a fixed speed uh, steel frame mountain bike, eating only eggs. Can you can you t- tell us about that? Oh, I've done a, a few little challenges in my time. Um, so Everesting is a thing where you just on a mountain bike, you ride up and down a hill multiple times until you reach the height of what Everest is. So it's 8,840 vertical metres. So I was fundraising with a mate for um, some shade sales or something in Port Macquarie. And I just put it out on Facebook and I said, look, if I get a thousand likes, I only go up about six hours notice, thousand likes by the end of the day, I'll do the whole thing on a fixed wheel bike. So it's a bike you have to keep pedaling the whole time, even down the hills. Can't change gears because it's got the one gear. And I thought I'd eat eggs only. So I thought eggs are high in protein and fat. That's probably all you're burning at relatively low intensity. And I only got 700 likes, I think. So there's only 700 missed out. I'll, I'll still humour the audience and try and do half of it on the fixed wheel bike. I was lucky I had a mate at the top of the hill who was flipping eggs for me. I was getting fried and poached and whatever else. So it kind of worked out from that point of view. But the fixie is actually more painful going down a hill 
then up a hill because you sort of have to use your legs a little bit to hold the speed back. You can't purely just rely on the brakes, otherwise you'll toast up at a front disc brake and um, you have a rim brake on the back. However, yeah, I was relying on the brake at one stage and the rim just heated up too much and burst the tyre. So it's a, yeah, something I've never seen before, but that's what happens when you're descending a 4,000, sorry, it's a 400 vertical metre hill on a fixed wheel bike. And how long did you end up spending on the bike eating eggs? Well, the Everest thing, I think it took about 13 or 14 hours. So I was probably on that bike for just over half of that, so maybe six or seven hours. So it definitely made me a little yeah, bit wow. stronger doing that. I was quite happy to jump off the fixie onto a, a lighter bike for the second part of the Everest. But, yeah, I have done another Everest exclusively on cashews when I was invited to do an Everest on a, a Friday, I was sort of a short-notice Everest. Um, I usually find it hard to say no to weird challenges. So I was staying at my in-laws at the time and just looked in the cupboard and thought, what could I use here for a food source so I can just carry my back pocket and found 750 grams of cashews and used that one. And I'd say that was almost as difficult because by the time your glycogen stores are depleted when using fat only, it's, um, yeah, it's quite on the painful side. And while, while we're on the topic of uh, doing challenges, I believe that uh, – you did a challenge on a, a rental bike in, in <laughs> Melbourne wearing your uh, sneakers. Tell us about that. Oh, that was nasty. Um, so RACQ, I think they, when they first started up the blue bike scheme in Melbourne, they wanted to do a bit of a, a promo sort of a setup. So I got invited to go down there and I don't know whose stupid idea it was, but um, to Everest on a blue bike, I thought, Gee, if I got, you know, got the weekend covered, I'll head on down and have a bit of fun. And it probably was for the first seven or eight or 15 hours. But the blue bikes down there, they've got three gears, which is gives you some options. But the hill they chose down there only had 16 vertical metres of elevation gain. So it's just that was 500 laps exactly that we had to do to get the 8,840. Now, the complicating factor is, you know, the last Everest I did, I think, on that North Brother Mountain up near Port Macquarie took 12 hours. So I just assumed that 18 hours would be sufficient to do an Everest. This thing took closer to 34 hours, I think, to complete. It was a mission. Like, it was pretty much two nights of sucking no-dos and caffeinated gels and coffees and donuts. Like, it was it was quite brutal, but just lucky that there's heaps of hippie fixed-wheeled um, cyclists down in Melbourne that were happy to join along and give us some company. Is it true, is it true you're on the phone, Jace, to the uh, people you were flying with and trying to negotiate later and later flights? <laughs> yeah, they, um, they, I think I'm, the flight was delayed by two hours and I just said, look, you know, because your flight was delayed by two hours, I've got no chance of, you know, doing this fundraising activity. That was my whole point of coming to Melbourne. So can you just bump it back a little bit, like two days later? <laughs> it's pretty crazy, but worked out okay. Nice one. Um, so, Scott, you, you uh, mentioned um, how Jace sort of forged his career in Port Macquarie. You want to have a chat about that? Yeah, so um, Jace, could you sort of talk us through how it is that you ended up um, sort of starting to do the mountain biking, the endurance stuff? What it was that 
uh, sort of led you into this most extreme version of mountain biking. Um, most people don't mind going out and hitting a few single trails for a couple of hours and then kicking back with a mate and having a beer, but you decided that you'd do it for 24 hours. Can you sort of talk us through how you ended up um, first checking out the 24-hour scene and ending up getting into it solo? Well, I first started 24-hour racing in teams. So that's a great fun um, activity. You get to ride around for you know an hour or two or a lap or two, then jump in bed, have a sleep, hang out with the rest of the team and, and keep riding around. But I had a couple of bad experiences being in teams. And, you know, one of them I was just incredibly cold and just, like, miserable. So you'd finish the lap and tag team with one of your mates. They'd go out and do a lap. And then you sit there freezing going, right, do I have a shower and get warm or jump in my sleeping bag? And if I do that, like, that's going to take me half an hour, 45 minutes. I'm not going to get much of a sleep. Or you just try and jump straight in your sleeping bag, kind of wet and nasty. Like, it just wasn't a very fun experience. And the other thing that led me to try and have a go at it is I could see I could race in a team of three, okay, and ride for eight hours and sustain fairly good lap times. I was actually, once I did one event where I was quite confident that I could ride just as fast as my whole team if I rode solo versus tag teaming with them. And I actually didn't like the idea of having to tag team with one of my mates who would do a slower lap time. So I was like, that's not, I'm a little bit competitive. I think if we're going to win this thing, I should just keep riding and then, you know, would go from there. So it's sort of a couple of experiences like that. Where I'm like, I should have a go at this, should have a go at the solo thing and, and see what happens. Is there um, anyone you throw, want to throw under the bus that's uh, slightly slower? Would that, would that be, happen to be on the line? Or? Uh, Scotty has been involved with a lot of my decision-making in regards to um, my mountain bike choices. He's been a very fierce competitor. Um, <laughs> But, yes, it's been great to have him around to help me, to foster me into the, the crazy direction. Bridesmaid. So um, speaking of uh, mediocrity, um, what, what do you think uh, is, is Scotty's downfall? Is, it, uh, is, he, is he just soft or, or do you think um, he's, he's got average bike handling skills? <laughs> uh, is there an option C? <laughs> is it all of the above? All the above. Uh, I would say, like, with these 24 hours and 12-hour things, a lot of it is purely just the mental battle. And I'm seeing that with um, the running thing as well. You've got to, you know, really be prepared to hurt and bury yourself if you do want to get those good results. But what I found from running, though, is, yeah, the more you do bury yourself, <laughs> the harder it is to get out of that hole. I've, um, I've buried myself a lot harder running I want to have mountain biking. So after that six-foot track, I didn't have any joint pain, which I was very thankful for, but I couldn't even walk down a normal set of stairs forwards or backwards without holding onto a handrail for, I'd say, a good week. Like, that's probably not a sign of a well-trained and um, efficient runner. Or is that normal? Like, you need to, to, to sort of school me in some of these recovery strategies. Like, I had skins on. Basically, as soon as I finished that six-foot track, well, and I had a, a like one of those goo protein sachets on the line, what could I do or is that just normal behaviour? That's normal, mate. We limp around for five to seven days, uh, yeah, like tin men. Um, that, that just happens. All the training in the world doesn't make that go away. Hey, uh, I might hand over to you, Scotty, to ask. Uh, I've got a great photo here of uh, Jace with a uh, nice head wound. 
I'm just going to go to the bar and get a uh, Sydney brewery. I'm going to hand it over to you for a minute. Yeah, righto. Um, so I might see if I can share my screen with you quickly, Jace, because I just want to show you, you were talking about uh, how much things can hurt when you're running, um, but I was going back through the, uh, the archives of some photos, and I'll just see if I can... Uh, are you looking at my screen now? Oh, it's a beautiful sun set, uh, I'm assuming, out that way. Yeah, no, that's not the one I wanted to share. Anyway, um, do you know the photo I'm talking about? Because we can do a bit of editing here. You're covered in blood. Um, yeah, I might yeah, take... I'm, I'm sure I have. I'm sure I've got matching glasses that go with a fairly, yeah, fairly yeah. red face at the time. Yeah, no, that's pretty much it. I'll, um, oh, so you're looking at the wrong thing. Hang on. Oh, that's a lovely photo. You see that? I didn't realise I was bleeding from my ear. That's yeah. um, that's quite concerning. I've still got all the other scars, so I know about that. <laughs> so, that look, I'm, quite, I'm quite surprised you can remember that given the uh, the nature of the headbang. So I think one of the things that's marked your career, Jace, is that you've, you're technically superior and you've had really very little crashes. Um, but digging out this photo... I was just wondering if uh, you might be able to talk us through it. From from memory, word on the street was that uh, you were in a group of about four descending off one of the uh, climbs out the back of Port Macquarie on a Wednesday morning. Uh, it was about 50k an hour, and the other three fellas managed to hold it up uh, but turned around and found you pancaked in the middle of the road sliding along. And uh, I'm just wondering if you might be able to talk us through that little technical oversight that saw you hit the deck while the other roadies didn't, mate. Well, what I'd like to say is I've crashed twice in Port Macquarie on the road bike, and each time I believe you were just in front of me. So in this particular occasion, I must have had an event coming up because otherwise I wouldn't have been on the back, surely. I would have been on the front just driving it and just giving it to all the boys. However, that's the only thing I can think of. I must have been tapering. But the thing is, in this particular part of the ride, if you get dropped off the back, you just you're not fresh and you can't save yourself for the final big hit out sprint so it's quite quite tactical um what ended up happening though is a kangaroo kind of startled the the people out the front of the group and being at the back of the group is not a, a good place to be when someone sort of you know the people in front of you just jam on the brakes so i managed to do a bit of wheel kissing with um with scotty and scotty's I guess my front wheel didn't like the kissing that I was receiving and, yeah, just threw me straight down to the to the road. I thought I could hold it for a while, but, um, yes, the scars tell a different story. Not fun. Um, I have – I'm still probably suffering one injury that I've had from, from running, but I'd say from cycling that's, um, yeah, hitting the road at 40K an hour. I was actually – I remember jumping up going, that's pretty cool. I hit the road at 40K an hour. And I'm actually, I'm sort of standing up and I'm feeling okay. And then it turns out I've got a broken collarbone and I'm bleeding from my face and need stitches and things. So, was, um, yeah. I remember the first thing I think you said was, no, I think I'll still be right to race. I think you're only a few weeks out from a pretty big race. And you go, no, no, I'll be right, I'll be right, I'll be right. And then uh, I called you later that day and I remember you said, um, yeah, no, it's a broken collarbone. And... Um, I said, oh, is Jen your wife? Does she know where to go to pick up your bike? Because we stashed it in some bushes beside, <laughs> beside the road. And he said, and you said, oh, I don't know. She just said to me, what were you doing on Scott's wheel? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Should have been on the front. <laughs> anyway, bounce back. Okay. So, Jace, 
you're seven times world 24-hour solo solo mountain bike champion. Uh, you've got even more national titles in the discipline. Can you talk us through your first uh, win in the 24-hour? Oh, first win in the 24-hour. Are you talking nationals or worlds or just first one ever? First one ever. Oh, I'm trying to pick which one this would have been. This potentially was at Dargle Farm, but was most likely even the national champs. So I'd had a couple of um, attempts at trying to win some 24 hours, and I was learning a few tactics. And you see with 24-hour racing, it's almost impossible for someone to win their first event because you've got so many things you just can't plan and prepare for. Like you've got your lighting techniques and strategies you've got pacing you've got caffeine to consider um nutrition is one of the biggest things to try and get sorted but i thought i had all those things kind of um yeah just seemed to all line up for the first national title and in that event i think the um the time splits were down to like a minute or two so very very tight racing there but when i did my first national title i went into that event not to necessary win the event as a national champion i didn't see i'd ever have the potential to be a, a national title winner at 24 hour distance i just went there because i wanted to beat this other guy that had beat me at the last couple of 24 hours and i reckon i had him and he didn't even turn up after all that so once the race started i didn't know what my goal was so i just rode around and I found out i was going to run we need names so yeah andy bell so he was a the national title winner at the time he'd won it quite a few times and i think he um ended up having some kids or something that year and put the racing on the, the back burner and i haven't had a chance to, to give it to him since yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i actually ended up teaming up with him to do the the mawson trail race i think a few years later but no we um didn't get to have too many battles around that sort of time okay. So at one stage, you had 29 unbeaten 24-hour solo race wins. Um, sometimes they were only weeks apart. What, what do you put down your, I don't know, your, your competitiveness? What, what do you put that success down to? Uh, it's all bluff. I think that's what it is. 24-hour racing, a lot of it is serious. Um, uh, it's, it's a lot of it is having good tactical tactics as well so i sort of knew formulas that worked knew sort of what i could eat i knew how long lights would work for when to change lights how fast to go so once you learn out those things you work out training strategies i sort of had a formula that seemed to work okay um going into that 30th one though there was something that sort of became a bit more complicated and um sort of aware of it now is the fact that i've got celiac disease and so that's that meant that, you know, during that event where I'd normally go, oh, I'm feeling sick, well, my normal habit and tactic if I start to feel sick is to drop the electrolyte. You go, the electrolyte must be feeling, make me feel a bit crook. I need to drop what feels sweet and salty, so I'll just go down to plain water. And then I was telling my support crew, look, we need to go for more plain foods as well. Can we just go some plain bread and plain pasta? We're in Italy. Like, surely we can find some plain pasta. And so in that process, I was essentially – probably just filling my gut um, more and more and yeah just felt very crooked for that that in, entire event so um yeah having the formulas seems to work the best and um, nutrition is probably one of the bigger points within that mm. um tra transition 
conditions obviously are important. What what have you learned about training as far as you know being efficient and, and what tips can you pass can you pass on to runners doing you know ultra race? Well I'd say the big thing is um yeah, time is time is a thing. So I think about in twenty four hour races you might be doing forty five minute laps. So if that's the case, you're going through and you're having 40 transitions, somewhere between 35 and 40. And if each one of those transitions are taking you 30 seconds or a minute, you've given up almost a full lap there. So if you can minimise that, that's um, that's ideal. So in 24-hour racing, I think someone timed my stops in one year. I think I was just over two and a half minutes total stopping time over the whole event. That includes stopping to swap bikes, food, drinks, and everything. And so to try and speed up the process, you want to make sure that your pit zone is not a comfortable space. It's not a space where you can get off your bike and sit down. Um, I've seen a lot of other competitors, so racing at the world level, that would go, right, okay, what do I need to get? They would stop and look at their table and have choices. So it's a really good plan to actually have all your choices already planned out for you so that when you go into transition, you know what you're getting. It's like, there's my bottle, off I go, rather than do I feel like the Coke or do I feel like the protein thing or do I want a banana or do I want – you just need to go in there and go, this is what I need and this is what I've already got planned out. It's not a, a bad idea to have an option in case you do start to feel crook, but with running, I think, and with cycling, you can often work out a plan and a formula that works so with riding, if I'm doing a eight-hour race, I know, well, I have two gels every hour and about um, a bottle and a half of electrolyte. And if I do that, I can ride flat out for eight hours. Not an issue. You don't want to be going through a stage where you're going, oh, you know, what else do I eat? You don't want to overcomplicate things. But for some people, training your stomach up to be able to have those two gels an hour can sometimes be a bit of a challenge, but it's, um, it's a worthy thing to do. I know one of my mates actually – trained up his stomach to be a lot more hardcore than mine and he could do a 24-hour event on 48 gels that was his that was his strategy he worked out he then had no nutrition issues no gut issues because he didn't actually have any food in his stomach he just had gels i'd be getting so hungry i don't know if i could do it you wouldn't have to stop would you well that's exactly right jace can we go after that Uh, yeah a, a little bit like um, I've I've seen you do a few 24s and I think you were alluding to it before about bluff, which is a very humble um, way of reflecting on what it takes to win these ridiculous events. But um, one of the things that you became known for is you were just unshakable. It could be three o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's been a tough race. The weather's not good. It's not going well for anyone. And you're out there trying to get a lap up on second place. Um so we've all seen video and, and some of us have seen what it's like for you to come into those pits and you never get cho- never, never get shaken. You're always in control. You're always just chilled. You're always Mr. Nice Guy. Is there a moment that once you leave transition when things are really, really bad where you get out on the track and you're, you yourself are wondering, I don't know if I'm going to be able to maintain this or keep going? Like you never let anyone see that. But there must be times where you're just up against it mentally and where do you go to in those times? Like how, how do you do that? <laughs> I'd say my first 24-hour race, I think I'd almost be lying if I said I didn't have a little cry maybe once or twice during that event <laughs> with it being so cold and so miserable and I was just so tired. 
And Jen would just be yelling at me, we're not here to sleep, we're here to race, get out and ride. She'd be, that's my wife, who'd be in the pits yelling at me. She, um, anyhow, that kind of, that tactic worked out eventually. But um, I think goal setting is a big thing, you know, breaking the race down into manageable chunks and going to a 24-hour period. It's got an end point, you know, you just need to, to work through that time. And then to be able to break it down and go, well, the first six hours, it's really important to get the track dialed in, try and make sure you've got all your lines dialed in for that. But I'm also fairly motivated by food. So I'm going, I wonder what's for tea. I wonder, like, I don't I don't make any choices for my pit crew. I just get to surprise me. Just So then it just keeps you guessing and you're going, I know it's going to, like, my wife's a dietitian, so, you know, she's going to make sensible choices on my behalf and basically give me what I need to eat. So she's done a few different um, experiments on me in the past with, you know, different bits of gravy and instant mash and pizzas and there's been a massive assortment of things. But to have that sort of as a goal um, to go, yep, 6 o'clock, what's for dinner, swap lights over, get to midnight, I'd say that's the hardest thing because you go midnight, there's still six hours to go until night time. But then, you know, you change nutrition around when you get to night time and go, well, what can I have now? What's going to be more entertaining um the pace is a bit lower we're going to drop off some of the gels and just have more substantial food to try and quench the hunger knowing that gels will probably come back out in the morning if the pace is on um but i found that three o'clock was probably the easiest time to be racing and four o'clock because you know the sun's about to come up like yeah. when the sun comes up that's awesome i just love seeing the sun come up that's sort of been my motivation to get out and ride lately or when i'm running it's to go well i want to get out so i can see the sunrise somewhere where do I want to be when the sun comes up? So it's the same sort of thing in the race. Sun comes up and you just forget how tired you are and away you go. And so if you can fight through the sleep deprivation and, you know, have that goal of I want to see the sun, well, then that's fine. Challenge is when you get to a country where you've only got um, or you've got 14 hours of darkness or 15 hours of darkness. And in Scotland, that's the case. The sun doesn't get up until well, 7.30, I think 8 o'clock is when the sun would rise. But then you know that once that happens, you've only then got four hours to race. But that time from four o'clock until like 7.30 just drags on forever because the sun should be coming up and I sort of need that to stay awake. Yeah. Have you ever? You go, Maddie. So... No, you're all right. I was going to say uh, two quick ones for you, Jason. on that note. Have you ever fallen asleep on the bike and have you ever DNF'd to 24? Um, I have fallen asleep on the bike several times, which is completely different to falling asleep when you're driving. If you've ever been driving a car and you just like go, oh, I'm still good to keep going, and then you have a little micro sleep, and then you've got so much adrenaline going on, you're like, well, man, I've just woken up, I feel refreshed, and then you can make a sensible decision to pull over and stop. When you're on the mountain bike, though, you don't get that. You just sort of, your head starts drooping, and then you start getting whacked by trees and things as you just drift off the side of the track. So, yes, not that un uncommon. I'm sure the sleep um, yeah, depriving nature of some of these events has done some crazy things to me. I'm actually convinced, and I should do some research on this, is that you just experienced deja vu. I want to do that cloud ride. I think I had two hours sleep on the first night. The second night was like another hour or less, and then the next – yeah, during the next night, I'm like, I've been here before. I know what's around the next corner. There it is. That's exactly what I thought was going to be there. And then look at Strava and it's like, I've never been here in my life. 
But yeah. I was dead set sure I'd been there. So that um, sleep deprivation is a bit of a bit of a crazy thing to deal with. Mm. Absolutely. Hey, hey, we we might uh, we might jump to a listener question now, and and the name's withheld. I'm not sure why, but it says, "Is the main difference between being a multiple world champion and a frustrated wannabe a supportive wife?" Mm. I'll have to think about that one. So. You have to say that one again. Sorry, I'm going to think about this one. Yeah. So the difference between, like yourself, a, a multiple world champion, or or somebody that possibly has the ability but doesn't get to get out too much, would the difference be a supportive wife? So let me tell you how my wife started doing the racing thing. So how she first started supporting me. So originally, back in the day, back in the 2010s. When I think Scotty was doing a lot of riding, um, Grafton and Varel, for example, has to be slid in there at some stage. Um, she would come along to races with me and would both do an eight-hour race together. And then she'd be filling up my drink bottles and um, while she's racing, so giving up a little bit of her time to do that. So I could come through the pit zone, just grab up a drink bottle that's filled up by her and keep going. She got to the stage where she's going, ah, oh, this is far too, you know, far too more important. You need to get the results. And so she sort of, you know, pulled that aside and we sort of had this battle where, you know, I'd still try and get her to race and ride and we're trying to work on doing that together. But, um, yeah, when I started to do these marathon events, you really, if you wanted to be competitive, you really had to have someone there to support you to pass your bottles. You couldn't afford to stop, fill up your bottle and keep going. So she has made a huge sacrifice in order for me to um, continue the racing and I can completely understand that that's, that's um that's a hard role to try and try and um repay i guess but jen has um kept close count of how many 24-hour races i have done and she's going to call upon how many hours she has stood on the side of the track for me to um i don't know if it's going to be gardening or what she's going to be after but she's going to cash them in at some stage (laughs) fair enough I'd, and I'd like to say that was a really good question, Matt Sheetha. Thanks for uh, putting that in. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that you uh, you used to show up to uh, road road biking groups and pack rides in port on your mountain bike. Is that true? Well, yeah, there was a was a stage where I went through um, riding a, a single speed, this fixed wheel that I'd mentioned to before, and I worked out that if I was in a road group you'd spend a lot of time rolling down the hills and not getting any benefit at all. And so this fixed wheel was awesome for jumping in these group rides with some of the older guys and um, some of the hill rides, and I could still keep up and be getting a workout the whole time. So wasn't that a common for me to jump into there? Um, there was a couple of days that were definitely reserved for the road bike, but any opportunity I had to push myself that little bit harder was something I'd go for. I know a lot of mountain bikers have talked about that is, but if you're riding in group rides and you're finding it too slow, you should always still look for little challenges off the side, whether you're doing an extra hill repeat or something while you're waiting for everybody, rather than just riding at the pace of the group. If you want to be training, you've got to be pushing yourself. I can probably hop in there a bit. Buddy. I think I think he's being a bit humble. In the glory days, Jake, he had this steel 
fixed wheel thing. I think it was called a Huffy. Is that right, Jace? One. <laughs> Not quite. So let's try the Sterling. <laughs> it was a Sterling. It, was, it had one gear. For those runners that don't know what a fixie is, it means there's no freewheel. You have to keep pedaling because it's locked in. So you can't coast down the hills. And Jace would get up. He'd be on the road by 4 a.m. on, I think Tuesdays was hill day. Mm. And he'd go, and this was back when Garmin's were just getting big so you could calculate his vert. And he'd try and get 1,000 metres vert. Um, before the bunch and then the bunch had come out we'd be all on roadies and the hitters had decided that they'd be cruising up these hills as hard as they could maximum heart rate jace would be there on this steel fixed speed thing he'd then put the hurt on everyone half the time he'd beat us up the hills and at the top of the hill we'd be 200 bpms absolutely passing out down the other side we're just coasting and jace is just going chase his pedals all the way down the hill because he can't stop pedaling so his heart rate state well he was probably only at 150 um and then we get to the bottom of the next hill and we'd hit it again and he'd just he'd towel us up for the next hour and a half then we'd all go home and he'd do another half hour hour and then he'd get to school with 2000 vert yeah it's all it's all key i love chasing numbers that's my big thing is is chasing numbers i'm still doing it now with power meters and with vertical meters if i was serious about doing the running thing which I'm almost there. I'd um I'd be looking at getting one of those those foot pod powered calculator do the things that can sort of track your training load. I think that's probably the way to do it because um, I want to try and avoid the little injuries that um, can occur from running. I haven't really experienced too much because I've got a dodgy foot right now. I want to know is it I'm going too hard or is it I'm just soft and weak and probably should start doing smaller runs before just cracking out 30Ks every day. I'm uh, I'm not qualified to to say, but uh, what uh, what what race would you like to do next uh, as far as running events go? Oh, I'm actually looking at the Overland Trail. So I've done a few hikes over the Overland Trail, and I think that'd be fun to do without a backpack. I mean, so without a big hiking pack, that sort of takes away the fun. If you could just go and run that in one day, I think that'd be awesome. But saying that, there's still quite a few other events around. I'd like to go to new places, and that's what I do like about trail running and about mountain biking is you get in and you get to see places that no one else does. So I'd be looking forward to some recommendations of some places that have some you know, really cool areas to check out. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's supposed to be uh, very nice down in Tassie, so um, you can't go wrong there. Yeah, I'll take a mountain bike, though. So running as well, yeah, that's the thing. It's, there's too many good trails everywhere, isn't there? Yeah, apparently uh, Bogom to Hotham is very, very good as well. So how far is that? Um, I think it's – I've got 65 in my head. I could be wrong. Okay, so just sort of day runs at the plan. That's what I was trying to work out. How much, how much can you seriously just – cruise through a 65k and then go yep what's next we go into another 65 the next day so i do like the idea of doing that the double ultra that scotty mentioned before that sounds like a, a sensible idea to see what you can do backing up day to day oh yeah, Jason, yeah. It's a big we'll thing get on you to come along mate the Royal double ultra yeah. yeah it's the uh biggest biggest race of the year we'll fit it in this year don't worry as long as you get a souvenir hat i'm there uh, uh, you got to earn it. Yeah. Oh, mate. Oh, it's a finisher's hat. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Scott, Scotty can lend you his day two ones. So. <laughs> New, uh, unused. Uh, what's that? New and unused. New and unused. Hey, um, Nick, can we just talk about heart rate zones? I know um, Scotty was, was going to ask you about it and, you know, maintaining threshold. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Like, and, and I suppose we can we can put that theory into to practice with running as well. What 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 you how do you maintain your threshold to race for twenty four hours? So for twenty four racing, I'll take a, a um I guess got power meters on all my bikes. So I'm very interested to track a thing called TSS, your training stress score, and so that's calculated based on your uh, I guess your functional threshold, so how much you can maintain for an hour. So there's all these calculations that go on behind the scenes when you're riding to give some predictions of what you can and can't maintain for how long. So it becomes a little bit scientific. But if I'm just looking purely at heart rate for 24 hours, um, there's sort of a bit of a balancing act, and it's probably different to running in that I'll try and aim for around that 170 beats per minute as a max for the first two or three laps, knowing that the pace will kind of settle down. However, there's sort of the added benefit of pushing yourself a little bit harder if you know that the track lends itself to being able to sit on someone's wheel. So if I was racing Scotty, for example, which we have done in the past, (laughs) um, it might be worth me pushing it up to 175 beats a minute up some of the climbs, knowing that then on the downhill, I'll be able to sit on his wheel and get a massive benefit down the other side that I wouldn't get if I sort of save myself up the up the hill. So in running, I can't see drafting is is such a big thing. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Jen, Jen would say to him with Thanks. that thick, what are you doing on Scotty's wheel? <laughs> <laughs> and Scotty's wheel would not be there, but carry on, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So with running, you, though, I guess the question to, is... Uh, yeah. So with the honey, reduce the running heart rate though. I haven't been very carefully monitoring the heart rate because I find that my cardio system is quite sufficient to do the running thing. I just don't have the legs. So when I get to a hill, like I might be able to push it up and you know bust the heart rate, but I'm more concerned about looking after the muscle integrity rather than looking after the heart rate. So when I get down to the flat, I'm quite happy to to wind up the speed, knowing that. You know, I can push the cardio. I know that just means, you know, suck down some more gels. But then, um, yeah, know that I can recover as long as I'm not destroying my muscles on the hills. I'm not sure what runners do. Like runners yeah. are very particular about, you know, pacing the heart rate um, probably more than what I am. I'm just, yeah, more concerned about looking after the, the legs on the hills and on the flats, look at, you know, winding up, winding the heart rate up, knowing that I can recover from heart rate. Yeah. Uh, that's good advice. I think uh, when you get to races, um, you know, such as the six-foot track, then you have to be conservative on the hills. And you mentioned like a lot of the runners hiking up the hills, so they're not running the whole way. They hike, they run, they hike, they run. And one more uh, question on this. Sort of yeah. Okay. When you hike up the hills, do you have to have your hands on your knees? Do you get a benefit from that? Like I saw a few people taking this approach. And, like, if I wanted to get serious, is, is that a serious look or is it more, you know, lean forwards and walk up? What's, what's the etiquette here? 
look, I think it's personal preference. Uh, so yeah, so you might, you know, you, it's it's just a personal preference. You 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 feel like you might get a bit of a rest leaning forward and putting your arms on your legs. Um, I don't know if it's more efficient or not. I think I think when it gets steeper, you find it a bit easier to lean on your on your knees and. Because I've tried to do it cycling. And you see some of the kids doing it when they're absolutely busted, thinking they get some benefit pushing down your legs, but I'm pretty sure it's it's absolutely nothing. So anyhow, I won't. Yeah, I might maybe I need to experiment with it a little bit more. What's your yeah. thoughts, Scotty? Well, I'm a really mate. I'm a noob. I've got no idea. I, I stumble up the hill as best you can. <laughs> oh, oh, I was going to say I'm a really shit hiker anyway, so don't don't listen to anything I say. Matty, I'm actually interested. I've never asked you this. So Jace talked about these ridiculous hills in six foot that come after the river when you cross the river. Um, Having never done the race myself, I've heard a few people talk about um, whether or not you can run the whole course. Um, You know, so Jace went and he probably can't remember if he did or he didn't. Um, I definitely didn't. Do the top runners run the whole course? Have you run the whole course? Is that a strategy people aim for? Yeah, so no, I don't. I don't personally look. I, I know a handful of, of runners that that can run the whole course. Uh, Marty Keys, Brennan Davies, I think uh, Marty Rook, uh, Rookie has has also run the whole course. So some some people that are super strong can can run the whole thing. Um, so um, was it tip, Scotty? Yeah, me run personally, the whole thing. no. What's the closest you've got, Wolf? Oh mate, I'm I'm too embarrassed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'd be lucky to uh, run like seventy percent. I reckon. So is Operation Sub Four back on for twenty twenty one? Um, no I comment. Can pace you. <laughs> Stop yeah. but, I, but I don't think I'll be doing Sub Four ever again. <laughs> uh, never say never. Yeah, once I work out that whole hands on knees thing, I think we could be could be a go. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's you can you can actually fall asleep doing that. <laughs> hey, um, Jay, so I believe you've done a fair bit to develop mountain biking in schools. You you you're proud of that? Oh, it gives me an extra hobby, and yeah, I'm loving to see all the the juniors come through. I do a bit of selfish ambition in there, in that I've got my kids into the coaching thing. So it's not like I'm giving up a whole stack of extra time when I'm coaching my own kids. I actually love it because it's getting them into it as well. I've got a bit of a, um, a performance team on top of that that I will go and have a, a play around with. But um, I train up a lot of coaches to deliver skills coaching, and it's just great to see so many people out riding and, and having fun, especially at this time. Like this, my bike shops are going nuts just with people buying bikes and families getting out and about. So I'm really hoping it just sees a, you know, an influx in kids wanting to learn to ride faster and more efficient and parents joining in essentially and doing the same. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm finding that with, um, you know, with every kid that comes along, you normally have a couple of parents that are standing on the side of the, the area, sussing out what's going on. And after a few weeks, they normally go, what are we doing? Let's let's grab bikes and and get into it. And I think that's you know, that's one of the um, uh, it's a key thing to see parents getting in and having a go. That's definitely performance criteria that 
that I like to see. It's not just the kids getting in, but you're just seeing more people get the parents in. Parents are now racing and taking kids out. It's just a, you know, it's a, it's a growing sport and it's um, great to see. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it, it is good, especially in the current environment, to see so many extra people out on the trail. It's good to see families. Hey, Maddie, can we take a uh, – I've got another listener question that's come in. Yeah. Yeah, it's yep. now good time. Yeah, all right. So, Jace, um, this one comes yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. this one calls – this person calls themselves Big Dell. Um, and Big Dell says, Jace, in the age of Strava, you understandably hold many KOM segments from your time around Port Macquarie. Which one of your KOMs around Port are you still most proud of? <laughs> so I can go out tomorrow morning and take a look. Uh, I'm going to say the one that I got today because it's <laughs> he's going to have to ride for it to find it. So <laughs> Big Dell, if he follows me on Strava, he should have a look at what I've achieved today. It's doable. It's um, 350 watts for about 11 minutes, and I think he'll be he'll be fine for that one. I know anything else around Port is probably more wattage being being stomped down. So this could be a, an easy KOM for him. Uh, the Strava hunting is a very fun thing to do, and um, it's yeah, just unfortunate that people's KOMs do show up next to their profile, so you can stalk and steal. Yeah. Well, look. Good luck to Big Dell tomorrow, nice. whoever he is. Scotty, um, you, I, I see you out running most days. What, what shoes are you getting around in these days? Yeah, good on you. I, um, I had no idea about shoes at all coming from, from um, a riding background. And so I, like most people, just started running trails in just like a pair of ASICs for 100 bucks, and um, did a few, got myself a few injuries. And so I started checking out um, from your pod, you, you highly recommended uh, Sean and Janet Ranulla. Um, and uh, Stephen Redfern, friend of the show, was kind enough to have a chat to me when he did the Royal Double Ultra and he was in some hokers uh, or hawkers. I never know how, what to call them, mate. Um, but he, he said, look, try the Hawker Challenger ATR5s. Um, and so I've been in those. This is my second set of shoes now, the ATR5s, thanks to Sean and Jen. And they've just been fantastic. I haven't had an injury for about eight months. And I don't do massive mileage, but I just get the wide toe box because I've got quite a wide foot. And, um, mate, they've been really kind to me. And I, I just got my wife a set of um, hockers as well, and she's loving it. Oh, awesome. Good to hear, mate. Good to hear. They are, they're good people down at Renoa. And they mail them out to you at Orange. Yep, free postage uh, out to Orange. They've been really good. And I've even uh, tried the uh, Running Matters podcast discount, which they're always happy to apply. So... Uh, you can't beat that. You can't beat them online, so why not uh, shop moderately uh, local, hey? Nice. Nice one. And while we're uh, speaking of partners, Jace, I believe you're on the Goose as well. Yeah, the Goose stuff's great. The big thing I love is variety. And they've just it just seems like they just pull out a couple of random weird flavours every few months just to keep you interested and in going, I'm not doing any racing right now, but gee, I just want to try out what birthday cake tastes like or what you know that particular flavor is so um i'm often you know ring up lloydie going lloydie have you got any you know any sample of this one this one looks really cool and so that's why um in 24 hours it's great because i can go what do i do do i just pick the roctane stuff to do the lactic acid buffering 
Or do I just go and grab a whole different spread and just try and guess which flavor I've just jammed in my mouth in the dark? So there's there's all sorts of fun that you can have in a, a 24-hour event. But, yeah, I normally do um, the Roctane as much as I can during the daytime with a high intensity, knowing that, you know, you can get that little bit of a lactic buffer and then mix it out to the other gels normally. They've got a, a new 70, caffeine, 70 milligram caffeinated gel that I'll try and use to keep me um, awake during the night. And, yeah, you'd be surprised how many of those things I can sort of put away. But, yeah, I mentioned also that um, they've got these single-serve protein sachets that, that I'll use at the end of events. So in that um, bag that we have the access at the end of the six-foot track, I definitely had one of those jammed in there. So it's great to see they brought that you know, protein powder into the country. And um, I pretty much use one of their electrolyte tabs in every bottle that I, I use. I don't normally use their carb drink. Normally just use a um, electrolyte tab and away we go. It does seem to keep the cramps away. And I um, yeah, take the little sachets, little, what do they call the little tab tubes. So you can take them with you when I go you know, exploring in the middle of nowhere. Always a mm. lifesaver. Mm. Nice one. Actually, right, I'll, I'll well, add I in. Going to say, add in my favorite goo for um, bike packing are those protein powders because with bike packing, you've got, essentially got to carry all your food. And um, I'm celiac, so when I go to a, a server, I can't just go, I'll just go and grab a you know a chocolate milkshake or something because you've got no idea what the flavor and things are put in. So I'll just go and buy like a liter of milk, chuck in one of those sachets, and got myself a you know protein shake on the, the side of the track. So I'll often carry seven or eight of those if I'm going big over a couple of days. So it's a very, you know, portable item as well. Nice one. Good advice, mate. That's, that's perfect. Mm. All right, Jen. So we'll wrap it up. Thank you both for your time. Uh, some valuable information there and it was a nice uh, social chat. Um, so enjoy the uh, rest of your your evening and and jace if you ever um come down I'm, I'm sure we'll get you down for the royal double ultra you you and scotty can come down and crash at my joint and uh bring your mountain bike and we'll also take you for some uh ride through some trails here in the national park okay yeah excellent sounds great all right so um thanks guys um i'm sure we'll be speaking to you before we uh, finish up if people want to follow your um, madness, where what what socials are you at? Where where will they find you? I'm just Jason A English, both on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and everything. And you'll possibly see some crazy things in there. And if you don't, maybe put in a request. So I'm always keen to try out something new and adventurous. I like it. Nice one. And what about you, Scotty? If if people want to see what's going on in Orange, <laughs> some we are on Strava. Uh, look, I just check the weather app to have a bit of a laugh, um, and uh, that's probably the only social you need to check for Orange with me, mate. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can always check me out on Strava for a bit of a laugh for all the rest days that I have. I'm pretty good at resting. <laughs> Scott Hazelton. Yeah, on Strava. It. Yeah, friend of the show now. Very excited. Friend of the show. Yeah. Definitely. All right, Jen, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Good chat. Have a good night. Thank you. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks, Jace.
Sure.